0: Amen, how we doing? Good. Um, I think we're on like fall break week eight or so. Uh, Apparently, everybody couldn't communicate about uh, when to have fall break this year, so we got like three of them, Uh, but glad you're with us today. Uh, My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I want to give a a thank you to all you who were able to join us uh, Friday night for the chili supper. Uh, My wife, Crystal, and I, that's truly one of our our favorite nights of the year, and uh, we hope that you enjoyed yourself as much as we did. And if you weren't able to make it, hopefully uh, maybe next, next year. Uh, You can join us. Uh, There's always next year. I may be a little depressed. Last night was a little ruthless. Um, If you don't know, I'm a big Yankee fan. And we were down two runs in the top of the ninth and we hit a two-run homer to tie it. And then just like that, it was all over with another two-run homer by a guy who's like five foot five or something, Um, but so good at baseball. Uh, Anyway, so, I'm, I'm here, uh, you can pray for me, you pray for my friend Adam over here, it's been a rough week. Patrick Mahomes, dislocated knee, the Yankees are out, um, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself anymore, but, um, but we're here. Uh, we, oh, all right, whatever, amen. Uh, <laughs> Baptism Sunday coming up on November 10th. Uh, I want to invite you to just be praying with me uh, that the Lord will be moving. We'll get to celebrate uh, just the saving work of Christ and the lives of some brothers and sisters on that day. Uh, if you're interested or you have questions about baptism or you're like, hey, I'm ready, I want to I do that, uh, please reach out to one of the pastors here. We'd love to visit with you and talk with you about that. You can uh, email us at info at uh, and get in touch with us that way, and we'll set a time up to, to talk. Well, to Today we're looking at uh, what I, I believe is probably one of the most critical passages in the Bible when it comes to understanding the, uh, the Christian life. Uh, you, you see, the, the way of religion is this, right? I obey so I can be accepted by God, right? I obey God uh, so I can maintain that His acceptance, His approval of me. Uh, or you could say it this way, I obey God, therefore I am accepted. Uh, and in the, that mindset, the motivation for morality, the motivation for obedience uh, is, in holiness is, is fear-based, right? I, I need to be holy, I need to be moral, I need to obey God or else He won't accept me, He won't approve of me, or He'll no longer accept me, He'll no longer approve of me. But the gospel is not, I obey, therefore I am accepted. That is not the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is is this, I am accepted by God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I obey. Therefore, I obey. My acceptance comes by the perfect life of Christ lived in my place, his sacrificial death that pays my debt of sin for me on the cross, and his glorious resurrection that displays his victory over sin and death. I receive that acceptance by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the gospel, the motivation for ongoing growth, uh, ongoing you know, growth in holiness and morality is not fear, but love. The motivation is love. It, the motivation is, look at how God has loved you in the Son, in Christ, who lived for you, who died for you, who was raised for you. Look how he was willing to suffer on your behalf because he loves you and he desired to rescue you. And so I, I look at Christ and I, I see his love That I already have, I see in him, in his finished work, the acceptance that I already have before God. Acceptance that I am told in his word cannot be taken, right? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that love is what motivates my obedience of God, my growing in holiness, my growing in morality and Christ likeness. This is so, so important for us to understand because, as we've seen in the book of Galatians, it's easy to forget the gospel. It's easy to forget what the gospel actually is and to start to think that, no, it, it's my work, it's my performance that earns my standing before God. It's what I do that maintains that acceptance, that approval, that right standing before God. It's all on my shoulders. And so I need to add my works, my performance, my going to church, my reading the Bible, my doing good deeds to my faith in Christ as what saves me, what keeps me as a Christian. But that is not the gospel. But on the other hand... Some might read, uh, you know, the first half of Galatians 5 we looked at last week and think, it is for freedom that Christ has set me free, right? That means I don't need to do anything. I don't need to do a thing. Right? I just, I don't have to obey anything. I don't have to do anything. There's no requirement on me whatsoever. So I can live how I want to live now. It's for freedom that I have been set free. Because Jesus has paid my debt of sin in my place, I can do whatever I want. But that is not the gospel either. As Paul says in Galatians 5.13, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Or don't use your freedom as an excuse for sin, but rather love and serve one another. Glorify God, honor Him. In the second half of chapter 5, what we see is that there are two natures that work in every single Christian, right? The spirit and the flesh. And at any moment, we're, we're living by one and not gratifying the other, right? Uh, you know, at any moment, one is kind of on the, on the throne and kind of ruling, and the other is being denied at any moment. The Christian life is one where we are to be living by the Spirit and not gratifying the sinful desires of the flesh. It is a life motivated by the love of God, where we grow in our love for Him. But before we make the mistake of thinking that this means that the Christian life doesn't take any work, we we must realize that it absolutely takes work. It absolutely takes work. But the work we've been called to is to press into the gospel, And to remember what Christ has done and who we are now in Him. To work hard at putting our sin to death with the truth of the gospel. We are to work hard at keeping in step with the Spirit. That's what we see in our text today, Galatians 5, 16 through 25. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Excuse the sniffles. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are grateful Uh, for your love for us we are grateful for the truth of your word that in Christ you have set us free from the curse of sin and death free not to do as we please free not to give ourselves over to the desires of the flesh but free to live for God to live for your glory to delight in you to delight in your goodness and your grace that you have shown us Lord, we pray by your spirit that we would be people who live by your spirit. That increasingly in our lives, we would, we would see the fruit of the spirit. That we would, we would work with the spirit to put to death the flesh, the sinful nature within us and its desires. Not by simply trying to change our outward behaviors, but Lord, by digging into our hearts and uprooting the false beliefs, the false idols that are present there. And replacing it with, with the truth of the gospel. That you, Lord, are our source of, of everything we long for. We, everything we, we, we seem to want, we have in Christ. Everything we truly need, we have in you, Lord. We pray you reorient our hearts, you reorient our minds. To delight in you, to live for you, to glorify you in every way. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. You may have a seat. Now, Paul here, he's speaking of a, the battle within, right? There's a battle going on within. And it, it bears repeating what I just said, that there are two natures at work in every Christian, the spirit and the flesh, uh, or the sinful nature, right? That's the flesh. And At any moment in our lives, we will live by one and, and not gratify the other. And Paul's encouragement is plain. Christian, live by the spirit. Live by the Spirit. And it may be helpful here to just explain a little bit more what the Bible means when it talks about the flesh in this way of being opposed to the Spirit. Flesh in this sense is, is not referring to our physical nature uh, as opposed to our spiritual nature. That's not what's being talked to about here, but rather it's referring to the, the sin-desiring aspect of our entire being our whole being, as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. The flesh is our sinful nature in this sense. It is our sinful heart or or the aspect of our hearts that is yet to be fully renewed by the Holy Spirit. And, And Paul makes it clear that there is a real battle going on internally between these two natures in verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's this internal conflict that is waging uh, within us. It's taking place between the flesh and the spirit, between the the old nature and the new nature that we receive by faith in Christ. And the picture Paul gives here, it kind of likens this internal conflict to a battle between two armies, right? Who seem to kind of take turns, like occupying the ground and then being driven from the field. Or or might be compared to like a a bout of, of tug of war. If you go back to your like field day, elementary school days for me, right? You know, two teams, two classes there, just tugging on that rope, pulling it back and forth, back and forth, until eventually one side prevails. And this is sort of the reality of the Christian life, this side of glory. It's this battle going back and forth, back and forth. There's a a real battle going on internally. And it goes back and forth. But the sure hope for the Christian is that in the end, the Holy Spirit will prevail. The Holy Spirit will prevail. Verse 17 tells us that the battle within is a battle between the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh. Now, the Greek word that's used to translate desires of the flesh is this word "epithemia," uh, which literally means an over desire, an inordinate desire? Uh, it's an all-controlling drive and longing, and, and this is really important to understand because the the primary issue, the main issue with our hearts, is not so much that we desire bad things most of the time, but that we have an over desire for a good thing, for something good. And when we over desire good things, then those good things functionally become the gods that we worship. The late David Pallison put it this way he he said, If idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, um, uh, then desires, epithemia, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for the same drift. The New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life-ruling desires for lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. And that's what Paul shows in Ephesians 5.5, 5, Colossians 3.5, where he calls those over-desires, he says, this is idolatry. This is, he connects the two. And when you over-desire something, even something good, then that thing becomes for you an idol. It becomes a God that you are living for, that you are worshiping in that moment. Now, the, the word epithemia is not used to describe the desires of the Spirit, which makes total sense, because how can the Holy Spirit desire something too much? He can't, right? Yet, verse 17 makes it clear that the Spirit does have desires and yearnings and passions, and those passions and yearnings are very strong, Every bit as strong as the over-desires of the flesh. So the question then is this. What, what is it that the Spirit desires? What, what does the Spirit desire? And Jesus, when teaching about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is going to come into the world, he says this about the Spirit in, in John 16, verse 14. He says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The flesh over-desires all sorts of created things which really ultimately is all about gratifying and and serving and glorifying self most of the time. And, And the Spirit glorifies Christ. The Spirit glorifies Christ. The Spirit longs to make known the beauty and the glory of Jesus. That's His desire. The Spirit longs to conform you to Christ. And ultimately, this is what the Christian truly wants as well. Yet the battle wages on within This passage is really a a parallel passage to what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. uh, There in verse 22 and 23 where he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is the reality of the the position that we find ourselves in this time of of already being saved by by faith in Christ Jesus, and yet not being fully redeemed, as we will be when Christ returns to renew and restore all things. At that time, when Christ returns, sin will finally and fully be eradicated. It will be no more. It will be gone. But in this time, and this, this point in history, uh, in the Christian life, is one where we are saved and yet still sinning. We're saved and yet still sinning. You, you have both sinful desires and godly desires. And while it's true that in Christ your, your deepest desire, if you're in Christ, is that you want to be conformed to Christ. You want to glorify God. You want to have that. that that's what your spirit-renewed heart wants you do still experience and can and at times do give in to the sinful desires of the flesh. But I hope rather than that discouraging you, I I hope that you will hear in in this text here the hope that Paul himself talks about. That even in that moment when you are giving in to sin, you can still say with Paul, this is not what I really want. This is not who I really am. Right? I want Christ, and I want to do His will. As the passage here continues, Paul contrasts the, the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. So first, first we see the works of the flesh. And he lay, lays out specific actions and attitudes that are, are the works of the, the flesh in verses 19 through 21. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the first three, verse 19, are are works of the flesh in the area of sexuality. Sexual immorality, which refers to any sort of, of sex between people who are not married to one another right impurity referring to unnatural sexual practices and relationships sensuality in the Greek referring to uncontrolled sexuality the plain teaching of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that all sex outside the context of marriage between one man and one woman is sin all of it the unmarried couple that hooks up shacks up moves in together homosexuality pornography, adultery, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says if you've even looked lustfully upon someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. All sex outside the context of marriage between one man and one woman is sinful. So let me say this, what this exposes is that every human being on the planet is sexually broken. Every single human being on the planet is sexually broken and in need of the redemption of Jesus Christ. And and let me tell, tell you this. The gospel is good news for everyone. It's good news for everyone. Next, Paul mentions idolatry and sorcery, and because they're, they're mentioned together here and directly linked together in the original language, Paul isn't simply talking about over-desires for good things here, but rather he's specifically referring to uh, rather specific pagan or occult kind of practices. Idolatry and sorcery refer to both seeking out false gods and then faking the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, the next eight things that are mentioned describe how the flesh destroys relationships. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, right? In, in this list are both destructive attitudes that you can have towards another person uh, or a group of people, and then the devastating kind of destructive results of those attitudes. Uh, our self-seeking Our our wanting what others have, our our hating others, our adversarial attitudes result in picking fights with each other, outbursts of anger, divisions between people, and ultimately warring factions. The flesh seeks to elevate and glorify self at the expense of others. The final two refer to substance abuse. Drunkenness and orgies. And again, these, these two are linked in the, the, the original language here. The orgies talked about here are drinking orgies. And, and one of the works of the flesh is an addiction to and an abuse of pleasure-creating substances and behavior. And Paul gives a rather severe warning for those who live like this, saying in verse 21 that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, when he says that, he's speaking to kind of the habitual, unrepentant indulgence in these things. Sort of the rebellious attitude that says, yeah, I I think that's right to live this way. I'm just going to do it. The rebellious or the rebellious attitude that says, I don't care if it's wrong. I'm just going to live in this way. unrepent. No desire, no acknowledgement that I I shouldn't be doing this. There's there's no like, ah, I feel convicted. I want to stop doing it. That's not present, when he, what he's talking about here. He's not offering this warning to the infrequent, repented of lapses that, that the Christian may experience in any of these areas. But he's saying, if these things are the marks of your regular life, and you don't see any issues with that, or you even see it as good, you need to wake up. Because for someone to continually indulge in the desires of the flesh without battling against it is to display that the Son has not redeemed them and the Spirit has yet to renew them. In other words, they haven't truly understood the gospel and and they haven't truly embraced Christ with saving faith. We cannot forget that that simply saying, I believe in God, right? I I believe in Jesus. That's not saving faith, right? Right? James, in his book, will will tell you, even the demons believe in God. They believe in God. They know He's real. They know He exists. But they do not follow Jesus. They war against Christ. If you are a Christian who has truly put your hope in Christ, then you need to know that Paul is not looking to undermine your assurance of salvation in saying that. But, but he is most certainly seeking to destroy your complacency. That you just be okay with what you're wrestling with. If you're not careful, right? We, we, need, to, we need to be careful. You can blow right through this list and only see these things as things only really licentious people struggle with. Right? That's for those real sinners. This isn't stuff talking about me. But Paul does something very interesting in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, But you, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now verse 18, it seems very parallel to what he says in verse 16, where he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? He seems to be saying that gratifying the over-desires of the flesh and being under the law are, are linked together. That they're linked closely together. And even more, they simply may be two different ways of saying the same thing. In other words, Paul is pointing to the motivation for our sin and not just the outward behaviors themselves. He's actually really speaking to what lies underneath those behaviors. And there's a reality that the flesh wants us to be our own Savior and Lord. Tim Keller says this. He says, the sin underneath all sins. Uh, The motive for our disobedience is always a lack of trust in God's grace and goodness and a desire to protect and guard our own lives through self-salvation. Now, for some, that life of self-salvation will look like religious rule-keeping. I save myself by going to church, by reading my Bible, by serving others, by being a good person, being moral. For others, that life will look like licentious self-indulgence. I elevate myself in my own eyes as God and King who rules and reigns and I get to live however I see fit because of that. It would be easy to simply focus on these outward behaviors kind of listed here as ultimate and then put our focus on just trying to stop doing them, right? Just stop it, right? But, but we have to push further in and ask ourselves, why? Why do I do these things? Why do I struggle with these behaviors? Why am I acting out sexually? What am I seeking to find or gain in my sexual sin? What is it that I'm looking for there? Why am I so envious and jealous of what other people have? Why do I think, what, what do I think I would gain if I had that for myself? Why do I get drunk and abuse alcohol? Why do I eat too much and abu- abuse food we need to identify the source of the problem. What's underneath? What what is causing this over-desire? What is the longing here? What is the root idol that is driving my behavior? It might be power, right? A longing for influence or recognition. Might be control, a longing to have everything go according to your plan. It might be comfort, a longing for pleasure, Longing to feel good, right? It might be security, a longing to feel safe and secure. It might be approval, a longing to be accepted and desired. The reality is, is that we all wrestle with these sins beneath the sin, these root idols. And we may be more prone to some of them than others, and, and they may show themselves in very different ways outwardly in our lives. But we all wrestle with them. And so rather than seeking to size up and kind of compare ourselves with, with others, like and how the, the works of the flesh are showing up in our lives, uh, in, in someone else's life compared to ours, we would do well to rather look inward, like look in the mirror. And not just at the outward mirror, but look into our own hearts. To seek to dig, dig in and do battle with those root idols that are lying underneath. In contrast to the, the works of the flesh, Paul then gives the fruit of the Spirit. And, and to be led by the Spirit is to be changed. It's to be renewed. Right To come to faith in Christ mean that, means that you have received a new heart. That the Spirit uh, has come into your heart and regenerated your heart. Renewed your heart. Actually even enabling you to trust in the finished work of Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. And the Spirit continues to work in your heart to renew you. To remake you into the person God desires for you to be. He created you to be. Developing Christ-like character within you. And in contrast to the works of the flesh, this is what life should look like more and more as you are led by the Spirit. Verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Paul with this word fruit, he he takes us to the world of agriculture. And and I grew up a city kid, right? Bloomington is the smallest town I've ever lived in in my life. Uh, And so that means I know absolutely nothing about agriculture other than I'm really grateful for people who do know about it. And that I get to eat the things that they produce. But uh, it, that's, that's about it. But I do know how to read Bible commentaries. And so thankfully I read one by a guy who planted and pastored a church in Manhattan. Uh, so uh, and he helped me think about agriculture and the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, but this word fruit, according to Keller, uh, shows four things about how the Spirit works. Right? First he says that the, the Christian growth is gradual. It's gradual. Right? When you plant a garden... Um, and if you've actually done that. Uh, my wife has done that. I've witnessed her do that. I'm like, that looks cool. Um, I'll be excited when it, we get to eat from that later. But uh, when you plant a garden, you don't see it happening all at once, right? You don't just throw down the tomato seeds and, oh, we have tomatoes now immediately, right? You, you can only measure its growth over time. And so when it, when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit in your life, it, it's much the same. Uh, it grows mostly unnoticed, And only over time do you start to notice things. Like you look back and you're like, wow, like a couple of years ago, I would not have been patient in that situation, right? When my daughter, when she was three, decided to draw a picture on the side of my car with a rock, (laughs) right? A few years before that, I would have had a much different reaction than what It's the work of the Spirit in my life, right? I would have never been able to display this kind of self-control and patience in that moment had the Spirit not borne some fruit in my life. Second, you know, the growth of uh, of the Spirit's fruit is inevitable. Amen, right? Growth is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. If you are in Christ, the fruit will grow in your life. It is, after all, the fruit of the Spirit. He's the one who produces the fruit within you. It's the Spirit that will see to it that the fruit grows in your life. And who will thwart or stop God from doing what He wills? Paul gives this encouragement in Philippians 1.6. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christian, the growth of the Spirit is inevitable. Third, the fruit of the Spirit has internal roots. This isn't about just like personality traits and characteristics, but rather something much deeper, right? It isn't the apples on the tree that give the tree life and make it alive. If you went and took a bunch of apples from the supermarket and tied it to the branches of a dead tree, that doesn't make that tree suddenly alive. It doesn't work that way. The apples don't give life, but rather they are a sign that the tree is alive and that It is the life of the tree that produces the fruit. It has internal roots. Fourth and last, the Christian growth is is symmetrical. Paul deliberately uses the singular word fruit to describe a list of different things here. right? A whole list of things that grow in a Spirit-filled person. He uses the singular word fruit. And this teaches us that the real fruit of the Spirit will always grow up together. It will always grow up together because they are one, one fruit. You don't get one part of the fruit of the Spirit growing without all of the parts growing. And so, you know, we might have a tendency to kind of look through this list and think, well, you know, I see some strengths in this one, and I, you know, and I see some lack in this one, and, you know, I'm naturally stronger in some of these, but, you know, and you can mistake that that strength being the fruit of the Spirit when in reality, it may just be a natural temperament or disposition that you've been given. But the way Paul presents this as singular fruit means that the real fruit of the Spirit won't show itself in just some of these ways and not the others, right? Rather, the real fruit of the Spirit will be growing all together within you. And let's, let's take a look at each aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Is your life marked by Love. A deep abiding love for God, a gracious, selfless, other oriented, servant hearted love for others? Joy. Are you, are you joyful? Right? That doesn't mean you're always smiling and happy. But do you have a deep abiding joy in God? That He is good. That He loves you. Do you delight in Him, in His goodness, and His beauty? Peace, is your soul at rest? Are you confident in God's wisdom and sovereignty over all things? Are you thankful He's in control, resting in His control? When, when hard things come your way, are you able to take them to God in prayer? And even when the answers you ask for don't come back to you the way you ask for them, do you have peace that He is, at, he is with you and at work in the midst of your suffering? Patience. Are you patient? Are your emotions appropriately in check? Do you give room for the Holy Spirit to work in your life and in the the lives of others? Kindness. Paul says in Romans that it's the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. Do you find yourself increasingly embodying his kindness towards others goodness do you increasingly love what god says is good and delight in those things are are you the same person in public as you are in private because in the word word goodness here integrity is also much in view faithfulness do you find yourself resting in god's grace for you and increasingly trusting in him more and more full of faith And are you true to your word and faithful in your actions towards others? Gentleness. Are you gentle with others? Are you tender with those you are called to love? Do you have compassion for those who don't know Christ and so desperately need to know about His grace? Are you humble? Are you self-forgetful? Are you gentle? Self-control. Are you growing in showing restraint and in your ability to say no to sin in your own life? Are you growing in your ability to control your tongue, to not gossip, not tear others down? All of this is the fruit of the Spirit, all of it together. That is to be growing together in the life of the believer. But the natural question is to ask, how? How? How does it grow? How do you grow this in your life? How how, how do you grow in this? And Paul doesn't leave us in the dark, but he points us to how to grow the fruit of the Spirit. Immediately, we're given the answer, verses 24, 25. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Well, sanctification, right, that's the the big theological term for for growing in Christ-likeness and holiness and and, and, and morality and obedience to God, is a work of the Spirit in our lives. That's a work of the Spirit in our lives. And ultimately, the Spirit gives growth to the fruit in our lives. It's the, the fruit of the Spirit, after all. Paul does make it clear in these verses that this is not a passive process, but an active one. An active process. It's worth noting that Galatians 5.24 uh, uses very similar language that, to Galatians 2.20, if you remember back. Yet, yet it's a little different. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, right? Which is talking about something that is done to me, to us, right? By the work, the finished work of Christ. Jesus sets us free from the condemnation of sin by paying the penalty of sin on our behalf through his death on the cross. He makes it as if you and I, we had already paid the penalty with our own death because his death for sin was our death. But verse 24 is talking about an ongoing crucifixion of the flesh where we ourselves battle against our sinful nature and fight to put it to death but Paul also makes it clear here that this active process of growth is not simply accomplished by telling ourselves, stop it. There's a great old Bob Newhart sketch, and I realize that probably like over half of you in the room don't even know who Bob Newhart is, or if you do, you know him as Buddy the Elf's adoptive elf father, um, and that's probably about it. But Bob Newhart, brilliant comedian, uh, Bob Newhart, Newhart show when I was growing up that was, that was on and, and stuff but a, a great sketch he has where he, he is a counselor and people come, this woman comes into his office, you know, wanting, you know how do I overcome this fear of my life and, and you know, and his brilliant counsel is quick and swift and it's stop it, stop doing that who wants to live that way, right that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about putting sin to death it's not just stop it just stop it What's wrong with you? Stop it. That's not what we're talking about. This process is not just doing your best to try harder at stopping your outward behaviors, but, but it is an active process. So what is the process? Well, Paul shows that it begins here with remembering that you belong to Christ Jesus. In Christ, you have been set free from the curse of sin and death. You've been set free from sin. You are no longer slaves to sin, but you've actually been set free to obey God, to enjoy God, to glorify God by faith in Christ. And all that belongs to Christ belongs to you in Him. In Christ, you have God's unending, unshakable approval. You cannot lose it. Nothing can separate you from his love. You're not only forgiven, but you're, you're welcomed all the way into God's family as his beloved child. Remembering that you belong to Christ gives you freedom to own the ways that you've given up ground to the flesh in your life. Because you're not defined by your failure and your sin. You're defined by the finished work of Jesus. That's what you're defined by. So you're free to confess to own your sin, to confess the ways that you have not sought to keep in step with the Spirit. You're free to confess, you're free to repent, and you're free to rest in His grace for you that abounds grace upon grace upon grace. Next, because you belong to Christ, you work with the Spirit to crucify the flesh with its passions and over desires. And again, it's not just saying stop it or just try harder or do better. But rather, it's doing the work to expose and uproot the the sin beneath the sin, the idols of the heart that lie underneath the sinful behaviors and attitudes. It's asking the question, why? Why am I acting out like this? Why am I doing these things? Why Why am I, what am I seeking to find by acting out sexually, abusing alcohol or food or sabotaging relationships? Is it approval? Is it comfort? Is it control? Is it power? Security? How am I in this failing to believe and trust in God's goodness and His grace? How in this moment am I not believing that His acceptance is what I truly need? That it's good that He's the one who's in control and that I will never be that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, he tells me. Crucifying the flesh is about strangling sin at the motivational level. And it should be as ruthless and decisive as a Jose Altuve walk-off home run to end the ALCS last night. Exposing the emptiness of the rude aisles. Showing how they do not deliver what you're looking for. You know, I thought in going to bed with this person that it would give me the security that I really long for, but it doesn't last. I thought a few more drinks would bring the comfort to ease the pain, but it doesn't. Exposing the emptiness Of those idols to deliver what you're looking for. And remembering how Jesus alone perfectly supplies the approval, the comfort, the security that you truly need. To crucify the flesh is to say, Lord, my heart thinks that I must have this thing in order to be of value or to have purpose or meaning. It is a false savior. I I see that. But to live like this is to forget your love for me. It is to forget how how you see me in Christ, that by your Spirit, Lord, help me to reflect on your love for me in Jesus until this thing loses its attractive power over my soul. Lastly, um, you, you seek to keep in step with the Spirit by worshiping Jesus. The motive for gospel growth is not fear, but love. Seeing the love of God for you in the person and work of Christ. Fixing your gaze on that until it moves you to worship God with everything. To turn away from those false gods. And to worship Christ alone. To delight in His goodness and His grace. And to do that, we must keep the gospel before our faces constantly. You have to be preaching the gospel to yourself day by day, moment by moment, as you're encountering these, these things, these temptations, these struggles, the battle that wages on within you. You must constantly keep the gospel before yourself, reminding yourself how Christ has lived the sinless life you never could, how he has died the death that you deserve for your sin. He's paid the penalty, he set you free from its curse. He is victorious. He is risen. And you have life in Him. You are in Him. You are the righteousness of God. You are an adopted child of God. His son, His daughter with full inheritance rights to share in the glory with Christ forever and ever. You must preach that to yourself day by day by day. But you know what? You also need to be deeply embedded in the gospel community. You need other people who will preach that into your life day by day, week by week. You, you realize this is why we gather on Sundays? I don't know why you came here today, but, but we, don't, we don't gather on Sundays because, man, we just couldn't think of anything else to do with our Sunday morning. Or we didn't have any better options this week. It was too cold to go to the lake. No, we, don't, we don't do that because we don't have something that we're looking for something to do to plug into our schedule. We do that because we need to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. And we need to remind one another. And we need to encourage. And we need to sing together. And we need to hear the word together. And we need to talk about the applications of that word together. That it might drill down deeper into our hearts to dislodge those false idols from their thrones and put Christ where he rightly deserves to be alone, worshiped, enthroned. We need the means of grace reading and studying God's word, prayer, fellowship with other believers. Fellowship's not just eating food, but it's encouraging one another, building one another up, gathering together, worshiping together. All of those things we need to constantly keep. Jesus before our faces, before our lives, then we might see his love for us, and that might enable us to love and live for him. It might enable us to put our flesh and sin to death, clearing room in our lives for the fruit of the Spirit to grow. And in time, you will see that fruit, that fruit growing more and more, because it is inevitable. Growth is guaranteed. Thank God that by the the Spirit, He will bring the work that He's begun in you to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And pray for Him to grow that fruit more and more in you. See His love. See the love of God in Christ and let it move you to obey Him. Not out of fear, but because of His love and your desire to love Him Your desire to live for Him because He loved you, to enjoy His goodness, to enjoy His grace. One more opportunity that God has given us to reorient our hearts, to live by the Spirit, is the Lord's Supper. This great covenant renewal ceremony that that we we share in every Sunday here at Redeemer. And so each week we have this opportunity to expose the emptiness of the idols of our hearts. And remember that we belong to Jesus because of his finished work. To remember that his death for sin was our death. To take of the bread and the cup, remembering his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us. To remember his love and let it stir our hearts to worship him. Putting our sin to death, clearing room for the fruit of the spirit to grow. Believers, this is an opportunity to examine our hearts. To expose the emptiness of the the idols that, that are there. To confess our sins to God. To turn from those sins. To turn from those idols and to rest anew in the grace of Jesus. See your Savior's love for you as you take and you eat. And let it move you to love Him more. To live for Him in every way possible. Brothers and sisters, you're invited here as we continue just to come forward and share in this meal. We break off a piece of the bread. We dip in the cup. There's juice and wine to take as your conscience leads. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. If you're not a believer in Christ, this is a meal that is reserved for Christians. But the invitation for you is to see the love of God for you in Christ. To gaze upon the cross of Christ and to, to turn from your sin. To turn from living for yourself whether it's trying to be a moral person, whether it's living licentiously, to turn from that and trust in Christ, to take Christ in faith. There'll be pastors and prayer responders here in the back. We'd love to visit with you, pray with you about anything that's going on in your lives. But let's, let's continue to worship our, our Lord and Savior that he might renew our hearts to put sin to death and allow room for the Spirit to grow his fruit within us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you, by your grace, you you enable us to even be able to do this week in, week out. To be reminded, to be reminded that we belong to Jesus. To be reminded of all that you have done for us, God. Of your great love that you would send your son to live and die and rise in our place. To be reminded that all that it belongs to Christ is, is ours in Him. The acceptance, the approval, the security, the comfort, the control, the power, the, all of that that we go chasing after in all these myriad of ways, Lord, we have in You. You have rightly in You. And You are good to us. May Your love, may Your goodness, may Your grace uproot those idols of our hearts. May we work hard alongside the Spirit to expose their emptiness and to to replace it with, with greater hope and trust in Christ. And by your Spirit, Lord, would you grow your fruit in us that we would embody the fruit of the Spirit more and more as your people for your glory, for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.